0: our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 to 17. Colossians chapter 3 from verse 1 where it says Since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanks, Carl.
1: Thanks, Ed, and thanks for uh, Mumford and Sons. It's always good to see a bit of banjo, isn't it? Uh, any anyone that uses a banjo has got to be good, in my books. Um, actually, I, I read I read uh, two interesting articles last year about Mumford and Sons, and one was very positive uh, about uh, their kind of their Christianity, and another was kind of very negative about their Christianity as well uh, and their kind of ambiguous spirituality. So. Uh, they're the kind of interesting contrast. It's always hard to know with these guys where they're coming from, but they have such wonderful, in their lyrics, don't they, such wonderful penetrating insights uh, into our life in this world. Uh, but I might, I'll, I'll post those if I can find them. I'll post them on, on my blog, on the church blog, so you might be interested in reading them. But uh, I'm feeling really tired this morning. I'm, I'm guessing, betting a few other people are pretty tired this morning, so maybe I'll just pray that God will give us strength to get through the next however long. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, Lord you know we're weak and uh, we get tired and it's encouraging to know that Jesus was tired often uh, when he lived in our world and Father we're tired because we've got lots of responsibilities in our life to perform before you faithfully and Father, we just ask that as we meet together now and as we think about your word, as we, uh, as we try to understand what you're saying to us and what it means to focus on Christ, Father, we pray that you give us strength. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit and speak uh, words to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back to Colossians this morning. It's been a bit of a, a, bit of a hiatus, uh, two weeks off. Uh, on other things, but it's nice to be back and it's nice to be back thinking about Colossians. Uh, well, it's nice for me. I hope it's nice for you as well. Uh, I don't know how many people remember uh, what, we, what we've looked at so far in the last few times that we've looked at the book of Colossians, but a few uh, weeks ago you might remember that we looked at what it means to strive for Christian maturity. Uh, and uh, we did that not by looking at what we should do, Uh, But what we shouldn't do, how do we not strive for maturity? Uh, We shouldn't strive for maturity, Paul said, by by seeking great spiritual experiences and we shouldn't strive for maturity uh, by piling up sort of great lists of rules that seem godly and wise but actually are powerless to transform us. The answer that Paul gave us for pursuing maturity and continuing uh, in uh, in the Christian life is to continue in Christ, to live in Christ, to live every day out of the power and the knowledge of Christ And, and his point was that we don't just start the Christian life with the Gospel but we continue the Christian life in the Gospel every moment of every day. And here in this third chapter Paul is continuing that same theme. He's continuing to explain what it means to live in Christ and to continue to live in Christ. But he begins, if you like, to, to put more flesh on that principle. You know, There's the principle, live in Christ, but what does that look like? What does that look like in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? Well, the first thing that Paul says about that is, at the very beginning of chapter 3, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now that sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But what does it actually mean? What does it mean to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things? Well, Paul uh, helps us to understand by giving us his motivation. Why do we set our minds on things above? He says in verse 1, we do it because we've been raised with Christ. Why do we set our minds on things above? We do it because we've died with Christ and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Why do we set our minds on things above? Because when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul is saying that we were dead in sin but now we've been raised to share in this new powerful resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead and if we trust in him we share in that life from the dead. Our life is with God already, now. We live on this earth but somehow mysteriously our life is hidden with God in Christ. And Paul is saying we need to live in the light of that reality. We need to live in the light of the fact that we're a new person in Christ, a new creation through the power of the Holy Spirit. To understand what that means, it's helpful to understand what it doesn't mean. Paul uh, is not saying, live as if the world didn't exist. He's not saying, live as if the world doesn't matter, as though all that exists is heaven. You know, so we might think, set your minds on things above, and we might think that that means that this world is all sort of worthless and, and unimportant. But that's not what it means. Of course this world matters. Of course it matters. God has put us here in this world to serve him and to love him and to share the Gospel with people who don't know him. Of course this world matters. But it seems that some people were trying to tell the Colossians to avoid the world and to avoid things in the world. So you might remember that, uh, that two weeks ago we looked at verse, at verse 20 of chapter 2 where Paul says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Here are the rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The suggestion was to avoid the world, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. But Paul says that the answer is not to remove ourselves from the world but to transform our life in this world by applying the realities, the heavenly realities of who we are in Christ to our current life. The point is not live in this world as though this world didn't matter but rather live in this world in the light of Christ and the new world which he is creating. So while it's true that this world is passing away it's also true that this world presents massive opportunities to serve Christ, to love Christ, to share the good news about him. That's why Paul can say in, is it Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's value in this life here, you see, but it's, but it's valuable when it's lived in the light of Christ and who he is and what he's done and our, and our life hidden with him. And yet it's also true that to die is gain. Because this world is transitory but that doesn't make it unimportant. What makes this transitory world valuable and significant is living in this world in the light of who we are in Christ Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we live with our minds fixed on Jesus at the right hand of God? How do we, what does that look like? How does that play out? in your life and in my life and in the everyday circumstances that we find ourselves in. Well, Paul gives uh, both a positive and a negative aspect of that. First he gives the negative in verses 5 to 11. So he says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So first of all we need to rid ourselves of everything that belongs to our fallen humanity. The great problem is not the world around us, but the great problem is us ourselves, the corruption inside of us. And so God says we should live in this world but in the light of the created, the recreated world that Jesus is bringing about and we do that by putting to death the evil in our lives and in our hearts. What does that mean? It means in verse 5, putting to death sexual immorality, impurity, Lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. That list focuses, doesn't it, on things which capture our hearts. Lust and evil desires so easily capture our hearts and entrance us. You see, the problem with humanity, with all of us, is not just that people engage in illicit sexual practices, that's, Not the only problem. The greater problem is that our hearts and our minds are so intractably drawn to those things. It's like a drug almost. It's like an addiction. It's like we're addicted to sin. And we are. One of the great paradoxes, I think, of the gay movement is that on the one hand that people want, people want to say, I want to be free to choose my sexuality. And then on the other hand they say, I'm not free to choose my sexuality, I'm born with it. I'm hopelessly incapable of deciding against it. In other words, they want the illusion of choice, but the reality is that they, like all of us, are trapped by our hearts loving the wrong things. The Bible says we're all born with hearts which love the things which God hates. And the remedy to that is not to embrace those false loves but to apply the Gospel to them. It's the same with greed. The things we don't have or can't have capture our heart, they hijack our thoughts, they consume us, they consume our attention, they consume everything that we do. We're we're unable to focus on what actually matters in life because we're so busy wondering how it is that we can acquire the thing that we so desperately want. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Lust and greed and all kinds of things capture our hearts and we'll sell anything to get what we want. We'll even sell the God who loved us and redeemed us and died for us. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy then when those things capture our hearts? How do we put those things to death, as Paul says? Well, the answer is we do that by setting our minds on Christ seated at the right hand of God. The suggestion being promoted among the Colossians was to avoid the world, But Paul points out that those things cannot transform us. They cannot overcome our hearts. You might remember a few weeks ago, I quoted, uh, a while ago now, I quoted from a a sermon entitled, entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the point of that sermon was that the only way to get rid of an old love and a wrong love and a false love is to replace it with a true love and a holy love and a right love. As Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How do we put those things to death in our life? We set our minds on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. So maybe uh, you're being drawn into a sexual relationship with someone that you're not married to. Maybe you're married uh, and you're being drawn into that. Maybe you're not married and you're being drawn into that. How do you put that to death? How do you destroy it? Well, for starters, it's totally inadequate to say, all right, I'm going to stop this. It has to end. That's true. You do have to put a stop to it. But that's not how it ends. That's not how you overcome it. You need a new love. You see, the problem is that lust and impurity captures your heart. You need a new love, a better love, a true love, a holy love to capture your heart. You need to set your mind on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. You need humility and confession at the foot of the cross. Maybe you're addicted to porn. You might think that's a male problem but all the articles uh, say more and more that it's a growing problem for women as well. How do you deal with that? when your heart is captured by sexual immorality. God says you need to set your mind on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. You need to love him. You need to be overwhelmed with him. And so captured by his grace and his glory and his loveliness, that porn becomes shallow and no longer does it, promise you that it will fulfil all your desires because all your desires are met in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're attracted to somebody of the same sex. We had a training night on that, didn't we, a few months ago? Something that we need to address, we need to apply the Gospel to. How do you deal with that? if you're attracted to somebody of the same sex? The answer? Set your mind on Christ seated at the right hand of God. The more you love him, the more you know him, the less your heart will be captured by wrong loves and false loves and wrong desires. The promise is not that when you do that, the struggle will end, this side of Jesus' return. But the promise is that that as Christ captures your heart more and more, wrong loves will capture your heart less and less. Or take greed as an example as well. You will never conquer greed simply by focusing on not being greedy. I'm determined not to be greedy. It will never work. It's empty. It's fruitless. But if your love for Jesus grows, if what matters to you so much is serving Him and knowing Him and being overwhelmed by Him, then the things that you can pile up in your possession will just seem so empty and so vain. Think about it. You know when somebody falls in love you know, with, with, with some, some person, you know they meet someone and they, they fall in love, what happens? They can't wait to throw their money away on this other person. You know, forget about being greedy. All of a sudden, you know, captured by this new love and this intense love, they, all they want to do is, is to serve them and to honour them and to, to shower them with gifts. And if that's true at the human level, then how much more true is that in our relationship with God? When God captures our heart, how much will we want to serve him and honour him and, and, and give up everything that we have? to know him and to please him and to know his love. So Paul addresses the sins which capture our hearts that we need to put to death, but he also goes on to address the sins which mar our relationships that also need to be put to death. Look at verse 7. He says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. So anger boils up inside us toward other people, maybe because of what James says. You know, we don't get what we want. And they have what we want and so we get angry. Anger turns to rage. Rage becomes malice. We start to hate the people. Malice is released as slander and obscene language. As Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, maybe that describes you. Maybe that's the tone of your life. Maybe anger and malice and rage and slander and foul language is the tone of your life. You need to put that to death. How do you do that? You do that, says God, by setting your mind on Jesus Christ. The more we meditate on Jesus and who he is, the more our lives are moderated and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life of compassion and kindness begins to transform our lives. It moderates our fierce anger and our malice. Jesus' grace overcomes our rage his beautiful words, his gentle words, his kind words, his peaceable words, they overcome our angry words and our foul words and our hideous words. As we, become, as we study him more and more and love him more and more and focus on him more and more and set our minds and our hearts on him more and more, his life and his being and His who he is moderates the foulness of who we are. That leads us to the positive side of God's commands. We're not only to put these things to death, uh, but the, the positive side in verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And then a little later, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together. All those qualities which Paul says that we are to put on are, are things which describe God, kindness and compassion and humility. Christ is the ultimate example of humility. He, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. He was meek and lowly of heart. He was the epitome of gentleness and patience. How do we clothe, our, clothe ourselves with those qualities, we do it by observing them in Jesus and loving them in him and pleading with him but by the power of the Spirit he would work the same thing in us as well. You might think to yourself, how can that be powerful? How can thinking about Jesus and loving Jesus, how can that be powerful? But even, as I said before, our relationships at the human level mould us, don't they? We so easily become like the people that we admire, like the people that we hang around. I'm hopeless. I so easily absorb the things uh, that people do and the way that people speak. You know, I only have to be in a conversation with an old Dutch person for two minutes, and all of a sudden I'm going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah," <laughs> and yes just flies out the window. I remember at, at college, one of my lectures said fair dinkum all the time. And I just thought it was the dumbest thing to say. I thought it was just hopeless. And now I say it all the time. The floodgates opened one day. I still remember the first time I said it. And since then, I can't put it away. I used to, and I I still do, I used to admire the Puritans. I remember the preaching lecturer at college said to me, Carl, it's great to admire the Puritans, but you've really got to stop speaking like them. You know, we're not the... We're not in the sixteenth century anymore, you know? But the crazy thing is I hadn't set out to, to be a Puritan, you know, methinks that it betokens us, you know, to uh, you know, I hadn't set out, but you read them so much, right, that you absorb it. You know, who you admire, who you spend your time with changes who you are. And if that's true at the human level, again, how much more true is that? at the divine level. If we spend all our time captivated and admiring the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and see in the Gospels his wonderful grace and kindness and see God's patience all through the Old Testament, won't we admire that more and more and be shaped by that more and more and think, you know what I want to be like today? I want to be like Christ. I want to, I want to be like him where he spoke those beautiful words to those people. The knowledge of Jesus and the love of Jesus enables us to put to death the old man, the old person and to put on the new. But we not only need to set our minds on the compassion and the kindness of God but also Paul says his forgiveness and his forbearance. So in verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then in verse 15, the same sentiment, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. We're called to show grace and forbearance and forgiveness to people who we have grievances against. There are few things I think that are more troubling in the Christian life particularly than unforgiveness. Unforgiveness in the Christian life I think shows that people haven't really grasped the nature of God's forgiveness. I uh, I, met, I still remember meeting a, a person uh, a while ago, who didn't seem to have anything good to say about anyone, uh, and you know every person that they'd ever met, you know there was some flaw. They had, they were holding these grudges for years, and you know to be fair they had suffered greatly uh, at the hands of people in churches and yet, Jesus says, when we understand the magnitude of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we can't do anything but forgive those who have wronged us as well. Whatever our grievances, whatever our pain, God's pain, God's grievances against us are so much greater Set your minds, says Paul, on the boundless mercy and patience of God and work out that same mercy and patience in your own lives. Set your minds on the price that God paid to establish peace. You see, we want our problem is that we want peace and forgiveness to be easy. We think that peace and forgiveness is the road to an easy life and it is in a way. But the path to get there is a costly path. Peace and forgiveness come at great cost in a fallen world. That's what the cross tells us, isn't it? That what it cost God to bring about peace and forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we want to expect peace and forgiveness in our lives then we ought to expect great cost as well. It's much easier to be bitter and unforgiving Paul says, set your minds on the great cost and mercy and patience of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and let that peace of God pour out into every relationship which you're in. Paul goes on and gives us instruction again about what else to put on. we to fix our minds on the the mercy and the kindness of God and the forgiveness of God, the forbearance of God. Next he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So instead of speaking those malicious words which spew forth from our rage and our anger and our malice, we're to focus on the words of Christ and to, to speak Uh, Words about Christ. The call is again to be focused on Jesus at the right hand of God, to be soaked in words about Christ in the Bible, to let those words turn over and over and over again in your minds, to let those words about Christ affect your daily life. The idea that Paul is, is giving us here is that we are to be so steeped in the Bible that those words come out as teaching and correction and encouragement uh, and even as songs. Uh, at the, um, uh, the men's dinner that Ed organised at the end of last year, I mentioned a friend uh, that I had, that I studied with at college, and he just knew the Bible. He knew Proverbs. He knew all these Proverbs, back to front. And he was so steeped in these Proverbs that you'd come up with this crisis in life. And, you know, he'd say... A kind word, you know, what is it? A kind word turns around roth or something like that, whatever it is. I can never remember. <laughs> That's what he was there for, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but that is, that is what Paul is saying here. We should be so steeped in the words of God that those words come out in our own lives and in the words that we speak to others. We encourage each other with words about Jesus. That's hard to do, that's hard for us to do because we're not good at sort of incorporating that often into our lives. That's why doing things like this, coming here on Sunday morning and and, and sort of committing to growth groups and and, and one-on-one mentoring and all that kind of thing, that's why those things are important because we're not good at doing it naturally. And so forcing ourselves to do it, you know, to, to set aside times when we can do it, when we will do it, are so helpful because we don't do it naturally. What we need, though, says Paul, is for those words to be coming into us, being in our minds and then being spoken out to each other. Last of all, Paul caps off this instruction about clothing ourselves uh, with this with instruction in verse 17. He says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a pretty extraordinary command, isn't it? It's, pretty, it's kind of a catch-all. You, know? <laughs> you, know? you haven't got the picture with the rest of them, then this is where it's at. Whatever you do, do it for Jesus and do it with thanks to the Father. I've been trying to think through this week what that might look like. Not for the big things. You know, we always think about what would that look like at work? And that's a good question to ask. But I was thinking, what would that look like for small things? What would that look like doing the washing up? What does it look like to do that for Jesus and with thanks to the Father? What does it look like to do the grocery shopping for Jesus and with thanks to the Father? Well, maybe it might look like this. Maybe you might walk into the shops and you might pray, "Lord, please help me to be wise in how I spend my money." Then you might be standing in front of the tin tomatoes, and you're thinking to yourself, "Which brand should I buy?" And then you pray, "Lord, please help me to be wise in choosing a good brand and supporting good companies." Then you're in the confectionery aisle. It's the aisle that needs the most prayer. (laughs) And you pray to God, Lord, please help me to get only what I need. And then you pick up some ice cream for the kids. And you pray, thank you, Lord, that I can do this. That I can spoil my children. And that we can have fun together and enjoy the world that you've created. And then you're walking up to the aisle the checkout and you pray, Lord please help me to have patience. Patience with the checkout person and the people in front of me and please help me to speak words of grace and about Jesus to this person. Or what would it look like to mow the lawn for Jesus and with thanks to the Father? Maybe it would look like this. Father, I thank you that I have a yard for the kids to play in and a yard to bring the beauty of your world into my life. It's a pain to look after. Help me to be thankful and to receive it for what it is, a good gift from you. Then you might look at the weeds and you think to yourself and pray to God, Lord, please keep the weeds down. Give me wisdom to know how to do that in a way which protects and preserves your environment. Lord, I want to honour Christ in the way that I look after my lawn. And I want to be thankful that you've given it to me. You might think, how ridiculous, how stupid, as if God cares about those things, as if you'd pray about weeds and which tinned tomatoes to buy. But on the contrary, God cares about every single aspect of his world and our lives. That's exactly what it means to take every thought captive to Christ. It means to bring it under the rule of Christ and in connection with him. You might think, what a burden. Ah, oh, what a burden that I have to pray about the tinned tomatoes and the weeds. But it's not a burden, it's a joy. It's like when you ask your best friend, what should we do today? Should we go to the movies or should we go to the beach? It's what it means to have a relationship with someone. It means to interact with them over the mundane things of life and the big things. That's what it means to have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus How should I live for you today, at this moment, with this little thing? Lord, you're sovereign over all creation. Be sovereign over this patch of creation that I'm a part of now and today. How do you live a life following Jesus Christ? That's what Paul wants to help us to understand and to do. How do you live a life following Jesus Christ? You do it by living a life entrenched, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, by setting your mind on Jesus at the right hand of God, by setting your mind on the grace of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God and the love of God in Christ and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to confess that so often our minds are trapped in small thoughts, in vain thoughts, in empty thoughts. Lord, our minds are trapped in this world below and we can't seem to see past it. Lord, we want to catch a glimpse of heaven but sometimes it seems as though there's a glass ceiling and we can... Catch the barest glimpse through, but our minds, Lord, cannot ascend to where you are and to where Christ is. And yet, Lord, in your mercy, you have come down to us and spoken in your Son about the truths of heaven and who you are in our world. Lord, you've demonstrated them in the life of Jesus Lord, we have seen and beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see your glorious and majestic Son, that we might love him as you want us to love him, that we might adore him and adoring him adore you that we might be filled by your Holy Spirit with a living relationship. Father, enable us to do this,
0: we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.